Section 16 of A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by A Gentleman on His Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by Sarah Scott Miss Trentham, Part 2 Towards the latter end of the second year of Mr. Allworth's marriage, his grandmother died, much regretted by Harriet, whom she left mistress of her own fortune with the addition of £4,000, part of it the accumulated interest of her paternal inheritance, the rest Mrs. Allworth's legacy. Her grandson succeeded to her house and entreated Harriet that he might find her there when he came to take possession. Their correspondence had been regular, but they had never met since his marriage. Mrs. Allworth was not fond of the conversation of an old lady, and from seeing herself not very agreeable to her grandmother, felt an uncommon awe in her presence. Harriet had received repeated invitations from them, but could not be prevailed with to leave old Mrs. Allworth, who had no other companion. The only relief she found in her affliction for the loss of so worthy a parent was putting the house and all belonging to it in order for the reception of her first friend in whose society she expected to renew the happiness she had so long enjoyed from it. Nor was she disappointed in her hopes of finding him still her friend. They met with mutual joy and Mrs. Allworth seemed at first as much pleased with her new possession as they were with each other. But Harriet soon found her happiness considerably damp. Mr. Allworth, unwilling to let his grandmother know the ill success of a union which he was sensible she disapproved, had been silent on that subject in his letters, but he was too well acquainted with the generosity of Harriet's temper to fear she would triumph at the natural consequence of his ill-grounded passion and therefore concealed not from her any part of the uneasiness which his wife's disposition gave him. He too late saw the difference between sensible vivacity and animal spirits, and found Mrs. Allworth a giddy coquette, too volatile to think, too vain to love, pleased with admiration, insensible to affection, fond of flattery, but indifferent to true praise imprudently vivacious in mixed companies, lifeless when alone with him, and desirous of charming all mankind except her husband, who of his whole sex seemed the only person of no consequence to her. As her view was to captivate in public, she covered a very pretty complexion with pearl powder and rouge, because they made her more resplendent by candlelight and in public places. Mr. Allworth had in strong terms expressed his abhorrence of that practice, but she was surprised he should intermeddle in an affair that was no business of his. Surely she might wear what complexion she pleased. The natural turn of his temper inclined him to rational society, but in that his wife could bear no part. The little time she was at home was employed in dressing, and a multitude of coxcombs attended her toilet. Mr. Allworth's extreme fondness for her made him at first very wretched. 
he soon found himself the most disregarded of all mankind, and every man appeared his rival. But on nearer observation he perceived his jealousy was groundless, and that she was too giddy to love anything. This made his pride easy, but his tenderness still had much to endure, till at length contempt produced some degree of indifference, and his sufferings became less acute though he lived in continual grief at finding himself disappointed of all his airy hopes of happiness. Harriet was scarcely less afflicted than himself. She endeavoured to render him more contented with his situation, and attempted to teach Mrs. Allworth to think, but in both was equally unsuccessful. However, this was not all she had to endure. When Mr. Allworth began with unprejudiced eyes to compare her he had lost with the woman for whom he relinquished her, when he saw how greatly Harriet's natural beauty eclipsed Mrs. Allworth's, notwithstanding the addition of all her borrowed charms, he wondered what magic had blinded him to her superiority. But when he drew a comparison between the admirable understanding of the one, her great fund of knowledge, the inexhaustible variety in her conversation, with the insipid dullness or unmeaning vivacity of the other, he was still more astonished and could not forgive his strange infatuation. This train of thought perhaps had no small share in giving rise to a passion for Harriet which he had never felt, while it might have been the source of much happiness to them both. In short, he became violently in love with her, and fell a prey to the most cruel regret and despair, sensible that all he suffered was the consequence of his own folly. Respect for Harriet made Mr. Allworth endeavour to conceal his passion, but could not prevent its daily increase. At this time I became acquainted with her, during a visit I made in the neighbourhood, and as the natural openness both of her disposition and mine inclined us to converse with much freedom, I one day took the liberty to tell her how much Mr. Allworth was in love with her. She had not the least suspicion of it. The entire affection which had always subsisted between them, she imagined sufficient to lead me into that error, but told me the thing was impossible, and to prove it, related all the circumstances of their intended union. Appearances were too strong to suffer me to be persuaded that I was mistaken, I acknowledged that what she urged seemed to contradict my opinion, but that it was no proof, for the perverseness of human nature was such that it did not appear to me at all improbable that the easiness of obtaining her, when they had both been, as it were, bred up with that view, might be the sole occasion of his indifference, and the impossibility of ever possessing her now would only serve to inflame his passion. Harriet accused me of representing human nature more perverse and absurd than it really was, and continued firm in the persuasion of my being mistaken. Whatever glaring signs of Mr. Allworth's love appeared, she set them all down to the account of friendship, till at length his mind was so torn with grief and despair that no longer able to conceal the cause of his greatest sufferings, he begged her to teach him how to conquer a passion which, while it existed, must make him wretched, and with the greatest confusion told her how unaccountably unfortunate he was, both in not loving 
and in loving, each equally out of season. Almost distracted with the distressful state of his mind, he was in the utmost horror lest this declaration should offend her, and throwing himself at her feet with a countenance and manner which showed him almost frantic with despair, terrified her so much that she did not feel half the shock this declaration would have given her had it been made with more calmness. She strove to silence him. She endeavoured to raise him from her feet, but to no purpose. She could not abate the agonies of his mind without assuring him she forgave him. Her spirits were in extreme agitation till she saw him a little composed, for she feared his senses were affected. But when her alarm began to abate, the effect of her terrors and her grief appeared in a flood of tears. Mr. Allworth found them infectious, and she was obliged to dry them up in order to comfort him. When he grew more composed, Harriet ventured, after expressing her concern for his having conceived so unfortunate a passion, to intimate that absence was the best remedy, and that there was nothing to be done but for her to leave the house. Mr. Allworth was not able to support the mention of her going away, and entreated her at least to give him time to arm himself against the greatest misfortune that could befall him, the loss of her society. She dare not control him in anything material while his mind continued in that desperate situation, and therefore consented to stay some time longer. She found it very difficult to make him think that there ever was a proper time for her to depart though passion was much less tormenting since he had ventured to declare it, and what before arose nearly to distraction sunk now into a soft melancholy. Mrs. Allworth paid so little attention to her husband that she had not perceived the conflict in his mind. She was wearied with the country to the greatest degree and made the tiresome days as short as she could by not rising till noon. From that time till dinner, her toilet found her sufficient employment. As the neighbourhood was large, she very frequently contrived to make a party at cards, but as her company was not used to play high, this afforded her little relief, except she could find somebody to bet with her, which was not very difficult, as she was contented to do it to a disadvantage. In this way she contrived, just, as she called it, to drag on life, and wondered how fine a woman as Harriet could have so long buried herself in that place, scarcely more lively than the family vault. When Harriet thought she had sufficiently convinced Mr. Allworth of the necessity of her absence, she took her leave with much greater concern than she would suffer to appear, though she did not affect indifference. But the truth was, Mr. Allworth's passionate tenderness for her had made an impression on her heart, which without it all his merit could not affect. The melancholy languor which overspread his countenance gave it charms she had never before discovered in it. The soft accents in which he breathed the most delicate love penetrated to her very soul, and she no longer found that indifference which had been so remarkable a part of her character. But she carefully concealed these new sensations in hopes that he would more easily conquer his passion for not thinking it returned. Though the winter was scarcely begun, yet having no inducement to go to any other place, she went to London, and as I had prolonged my stay in the country 
only to gratify my inclination for her company, I went with her to town. Mrs. Allworth did not continue there a month after us, but her husband, whose health was by no means in a good state, went to Bath, and that he might not be quite destitute of pleasure, he carried his little boy with him, though but a year and a quarter old. His wife did not contend with him for this privilege. She would have seen little more of the babe had it been in London. Harriet Trentham was at her first arrival in very low spirits, and every letter she received from Mr. Allworth increased her dejection, as it painted his in very strong colours. As the town filled, she began to try if dissipation could dispel her melancholy. Her beauty, the fineness of her person, and her being known to have a large fortune, which fame even exaggerated, procured her many lovers, and she became the most admired woman in town. This was a new source of pleasure to her. She had lived where she saw not many single men, and though few of these who dared to flatter themselves with hopes had failed paying their addresses to her, yet these successive courtships were very dull when compared with all the flutter of general admiration. Her books were now neglected, and to avoid thinking on a subject which constantly afflicted her, she forced herself into public, and was glad to find that the idleness of the men and her own vanity could afford her entertainment. She was not, however, so totally engrossed by this pleasing dissipation as to neglect any means of serving the distressed. Mrs. Tonston, exerting the genius she had so early shown for traducing others, set her husband and his family at variance, till at length the falsehoods by which she had affected it came to be discovered. Her husband and she had never lived well together, and this proof of her bad heart disgusted him so entirely that he turned her out of his house, allowing her a mere trifle for her support. In this distress she applied to Harriet, who she knew was ever ready to serve even those who had most injured her. Her application was not unsuccessful. Harriet sent her a considerable present for her immediate convenience, and then went into the country to Mr. Tonston, to whom she represented so effectually his ungenerous treatment, since the fortune his wife brought him gave her a right to a decent maintenance, that he made a proper settlement upon her, and gave the writings into Harriet's hands, who not only saw the money paid regularly, but took so much pains to convince Mrs. Tonston of the malignity of her disposition, that she brought her to a due sense of it, and by applying for his assistance to mend her heart, who best knew its defects, she became so altered in temper that five years after her separation from her husband, Harriet effected a reconciliation, and they now live in great amity together, gratefully acknowledging their obligations to her. I have anticipated this fact in order to render my narrative less tedious, or I should have stopped at Harriet's procuring a settlement for Mrs. Tonston, and have told you that by lying in her return at an inn where the smallpox then was, she caught that distemper, and soon after she arrived in London it appeared. I need not say that she had it to a very violent degree. Being then in town, I had the good fortune to nurse her, and flatter myself that my care was not useless, for in cases so dangerous, no one who does not feel all the tender solicitude of a friend 
can be a proper nurse. Mrs. Allworth wrote her husband word of Harriet's illness, who came post to London, filled with the extremest anxiety, and shared the fatigue of nursing with me. She was all the time delirious. When she came to her senses, she at first seemed mortified to think Mr. Allworth had seen her in that disfigured condition, but on reflection told me she rejoiced in it, as she thought it must totally extinguish his passion, and her greatest solicitude was for his happiness. But she afterwards found her expectation was ill-grounded. When she recovered, she perceived that the smallpox had entirely destroyed her beauty. She acknowledged she was not insensible to this mortification, and to avoid the observation of the envious, or even of the idly curious, she retired, as soon as she was able to travel, to a country house which I hired for her. In a very short time she became perfectly contented with the alteration this cruel distemper had made in her. Her love for reading returned, and she regained the quiet happiness of which flutter and dissipation had deprived her without substituting anything so valuable in its place. She has often said she looks on this accident as a reward for the good she had done Mrs. Tonston, and that few benevolent actions received so immediate a recompense, or we should be less remiss in our duties, though not more meritorious in performing them. She found retirement better calculated for overcoming a hopeless passion than noise and flutter. She had indeed by dissipation often chased Mr. Allworth from her thoughts, but at the first moment of leisure his idea returned in as lively colours as if it had always kept possession of her mind. In the country she had time to reflect on the necessity of conquering this inclination, if she wished to enjoy any tolerable happiness, and therefore took proper measures to combat it. Reason and piety, when united, are extremely prevalent, and with their assistance she restrained her affection once more within its ancient bounds of friendship. Her letters to Mr. Allworth were filled with remonstrances against the indulgence of his love, and the same means she had found effectual she recommended to him, and with satisfaction learnt that though they had not entirely succeeded, yet he had acquired such a command over his heart that he was as little wretched as a man can be who is a living monument of the too common folly of being captivated by a sudden glare of person and parts, and of the fatal error of those men who seek in marriage for an amusing trifler rather than a rational and amiable companion, and too late find that the vivacity which pleases in the mistress is often a fatal vice in a wife. He lives chiefly in the country, has generally a few friends in the house with him, and takes a great deal of pains in the education of his two sons, while their mother spends almost the whole year in town, immersed in folly and dissipation. About fourteen years ago, Harriet, who I ought to begin to call Miss Trentham, came to see a lady in this neighbourhood, and thus was first known to the inhabitants of this mansion. They were much pleased with her acquaintance, and when she had performed her visit, invited her to pass a little time with them. She required no solicitation, for it was the very thing she wished, and here she has remained ever since. When Mr. Maynard died, leaving me but a small jointure, 
Miss Trentham was indulged in her inclination of asking me to spend the first part of my widowhood with her and her friends, and I have been fortunate enough to recommend myself so effectually that they have left me no room to doubt they choose I should continue with them, and indeed I think I could scarcely support life were I banished from this heavenly society. Miss Trentham and Mr. Allworth keep up a constant correspondence by letters, but avoid meeting. His wife has brought him one daughter, and Miss Trentham's happiness has been rendered complete by obtaining from her permission to educate this child, a favour which, contrary to what is usual, is esteemed very small by her who granted, and very great by the person that received it. This girl is now ten years old, and the most accomplished of her age of any one, perhaps, in the kingdom. Her person is fine, and her temper extremely engaging. She went about a week ago to her father, whom she visits for about three weeks twice in a year, and never returns unimproved. As Miss Trentham's fortune made a good addition to the income of the society, they, on this occasion, established in the parish a manufacture of carpets and rugs, which has succeeded so well as to enrich all the country round about. As the morning was not very far advanced, I asked Mrs. Maynard to conduct us to this manufacture, as in my opinion there is no sight so delightful as extensive industry. She readily complied, and led us to a sort of street, the most inhabited part of the village, above half a mile from Millennium Hall. Here we found several hundreds of people of all ages, from six years old to fourscore, employed in the various parts of the manufacture, some spinning, some weaving, others dyeing the worsted, and in short, all busy, singing and whistling, with the appearance of general cheerfulness, and their neat dress showed them in a condition of proper plenty. The ladies, it seemed, at first hired persons to instruct the neighbourhood, which was then burdened with poor, and so overstocked with hands, that only a small part of them could find work. But as they feared an enterprising undertaker might ruin their plan, they themselves undertook to be stewards. They stood the first expense, allowed a considerable profit to the directors, but kept the distribution of the money entirely in their own hands. Thus they prevent the poor from being oppressed by their superiors, for they allow them great wages, and by their very diligent inspection, hinder any frauds. I never was more charmed than to see a manufacture so well ordered that scarcely any one is too young or too old to partake of its emoluments. As the ladies have the direction of the whole, they give more to the children and the aged, in proportion to the work they do, than to those who are more capable as a proper encouragement and reward for industry in those seasons of life in which it is so uncommon. We were so taken up with observing these people that we got home but just as dinner was carrying in. In the afternoon we informed the ladies how we had spent the latter part of the morning, and in the course of conversation Lamont told them that they were the first people he ever knew who lived entirely for others without any regard to their own pleasure, and that were he a Roman Catholic, he should beg of them to confer on him the merit of some of their works of supererogation. "'I do not know where you could find them,' replied Miss Mansell. 
I believe we have not been able to discover any such. On the contrary, we are sensible of great deficiencies in the performance of our duty. Can you imagine, madam, interrupted Lamont, that all you do here is a duty? Indispensably so, answered Miss Mansell. We are told by him who cannot err that our time, our money, and our understandings are entrusted with us as so many talents, for the use of which we must give a strict account. How we ought to use them, he has likewise told us. As to our fortunes in the most express terms, when he commands us to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to relieve the prisoner, and to take care of the sick. Those who have not an inheritance that enables them to do this are commanded to labour in order to obtain means to relieve those who are incapable of gaining the necessaries of life. Can we then imagine that everyone is not required to assist others to the utmost of his power, since we are commanded even to work for the means of doing so? God's mercy and bounty is universal. It flows unasked and unmerited. We are bid to endeavour to imitate him as far as our nature will enable us to do it. What bounds then ought we to set to our good offices, but the want of power to extend them further? Our faculties and our time should be employed in directing our donations in a manner the most conducive to the benefit of mankind, the most for the encouragement of virtue and the suppression of vice. To assist in this work is the business of speech, of reason and of time. These ought to be employed in seeking out opportunities of doing good and in contriving means for regulating it to the best purpose. Shall I allow much careful thought towards settling the affairs of my household with economy and be careless how I distribute my benefactions to the poor, to whom I am only a steward, and of whose interests I ought to be as careful as of my own? By giving them my money, I may sacrifice my covetousness but by doing it negligently, I indulge my indolence, which I ought to endeavour to conquer as much as every other vice. Each state has its trials. The poverty of the lower rank of people exercises their industry and patience. The riches of the great are trials of their temperance, humility and humanity. Theirs is perhaps the more difficult part, but their present reward is also greater if they acquit themselves well. As for the future, there may probably be no inequality. You observed, sir, said Miss Trentham, that we live for others, without any regard to our own pleasure. Therefore I imagine you think our way of life inconsistent with it. But give me leave to say you are mistaken. What is there worth enjoying in this world that we do not possess? We have all the conveniences of life, nay, all the luxuries that can be included among them. We might indeed keep a large retinue. But do you think the sight of a number of useless attendants could afford us half the real satisfaction that we feel from seeing the money, which must be lavished on them, expended in supporting the old and decrepit, or nourishing the helpless infant? We might dress with so much expense, that we could scarcely move under the burden of our apparel. But is that more eligible than to see the shivering wretch clad in warm and comfortable attire? Can the greatest luxury of the table 
afford so true a pleasure as the reflection that instead of its being overcharged with superfluities, the homely board of the cottager is blessed with plenty? We might spend our time in going from place to place, where none wish to see us except they find a deficiency at the card-table, perpetually living among those whose vacant minds are ever seeking after pleasures foreign to their own tastes, and pursue joys which vanish as soon as possessed. For these would you have us leave the infinite satisfaction of being beheld with gratitude and love, and the successive enjoyments of rational delights, which here fill up every hour? Should we do wisely in quitting a scene where every object exalts our mind to the great Creator, to mix among all the folly of depraved nature? If we take it in a more serious light still, we shall perceive a great difference in the comforts arising from the reflections on a life spent in an endeavour to obey our Maker and to correct our own defects in a constant sense of our offences, and an earnest desire to avoid the commission of them for the future, from a course of hurry and dissipation which will not afford us leisure to recollect our errors, nor attention to attempt amending them. The difference is indeed striking, said Lamont, and there can be no doubt which is most eligible. But are you not too rigid in your censures of dissipation? You seem to be inclined to forbid all innocent pleasures. By no means, replied Miss Trentham, but things are not always innocent because they are trifling. Can anything be more innocent than picking of straws or playing at pushpin? but if a man employs himself so continually in either that he neglects to serve a friend or to inspect his affairs, does it not cease to be innocent? Should a schoolboy be found whipping a top during school hours, would his master forbear correction because it is an innocent amusement? And yet thus we plead for things as trifling, though they obstruct the exercise of the greatest duties in life. Whatever renders us forgetful of our Creator, and of the purposes for which He called us into being, or leads us to be inattentive to His commands, or neglectful in the performance of them, becomes criminal, however innocent in its own nature. While we pursue these things with a moderation which prevents such effects, they are always innocent and often desirable. The excess only is to be avoided." "'I have nothing left me to say,' answered Lamont, "'than that your doctrine must be true, and your lives are happy. "'But may I without impertinence observe "'that I should imagine your extensive charities "'require an immense fortune?' "'Not so much, perhaps,' said Mrs. Morgan, "'as you suppose. "'We keep a very regular account, "'and at an average, for every year will not be exactly the same. "'The total stands thus.' The girls' school, £400 a year. The boys, 150 Apprenticing some and equipping others for service, 100 The clothing of the girls in the house, 40 The almshouses, 200 The maintenance of the monsters, 120 Fortunes and furniture for such young persons as marry, in this and the adjoining parishes, 200 all this together amounts only to twelve hundred and ten pounds a year, and yet affords all reasonable comforts. The expenses of ourselves and household, in our advantageous situation, 
come within eight hundred a year. Finding so great a balance in our favour, we agreed to appropriate a thousand a year for the society of gentlewomen with small or no fortunes. But it has turned out in such a manner that they cost us a trifle. We then dedicated that sum to the establishment of a manufacture. But since the fourth year, it has much more than paid its expenses, though in many respects we do not act with the economy usual in such cases, but give very high wages, for our design being to serve a multitude of poor destitute of work, we have no nice regard to profit. As we did not mean to drive a trade, we have been at a loss what to do with the profits. We have out of it made a fund for the sick and disabled, from which they may receive a comfortable support and intend to secure it to them in perpetuity, in the best manner we can. "'How few people of fortune are there,' said Lamont, who could not afford twelve hundred pounds a year, with only retrenching superfluous and burdensome expenses. But if they would only imitate you in any one branch, how much greater pleasure would they then receive from their fortunes than they now enjoy?' While he was engaged in discourse with the ladies, I observed to Mrs. Maynard that by the account she had given me of their income, their expenses fell far short of it. She whispered me that their accidental charities were innumerable, all the rest being employed in that way. Their acquaintance know they cannot so much oblige as by giving them an opportunity of relieving distress. They receive continual applications, and though they give to none indiscriminately, yet they never refuse any who really want. Their donations sometimes are in great sums, when the case requires such extraordinary assistance. If they hear of any gentleman's family oppressed by too many children, or impoverished by sickness, they contrive to convey an adequate present privately, or will sometimes ask permission to put some of their children into business, or buy them places or commissions. We acquainted the ladies that we should trouble them no longer than that night and with regret saw it so soon ended. The next morning, upon going into Lamont's room, I found him reading the New Testament. I could not forbear expressing some pleasure and surprise at seeing him thus uncommonly employed. He told me he was convinced by the conduct of the ladies of this house that their religion must be the true one. When he had before considered the lives of Christians, their doctrine seemed to have so little influence on their actions that he imagined there was no sufficient effect produced by Christianity to warrant a belief that it was established by a means so very extraordinary. But he now saw what that religion in reality was, and by the purity of its precepts was convinced its original must be divine. It now appeared evidently to be worthy of its miraculous institution, he was resolved to examine whether the moral evidences concurred with that divine stamp which was so strongly impressed upon it, and he had risen at daybreak to get a Bible out of the parlour, that he might study precepts which could thus exalt human nature almost to divine. It was with great joy I found him so seriously affected, and when we went to breakfast could not forbear communicating my satisfaction to my cousin, who sincerely shared in it. As soon as breakfast was over, we took leave of the ladies, though not till they had made us promise a second visit, 
to which we very gladly agreed, for could we with decency have prolonged this, I know not when we should have departed. You, perhaps, wish we had done it sooner, and may think I have been too prolix in my account of this society, but the pleasure I find in recollection is such that I could not restrain my pen within moderate bounds. If what I have described may tempt any one to go and do likewise, I shall think myself fortunate in communicating it. For my part, my thoughts are all engaged in a scheme to imitate them on a smaller scale. I am, sir. End of section 16 End of a description of Millennium Hall and the country adjacent by Sarah Scott